Hello, book friends. My name is Jocelyn, and this is the Literary Therapist Podcast. I started this podcast because I love talking about books, and I love talking about therapy, and I thought putting the two together would be an interesting adventure. Thank you for taking this adventure with me as we go through realms far and fictional. Now, let's start our session. So there we are. Anne found out she's not wanted because she's not a boy. She's having a trauma reaction, experiencing rejection. She's very upset, which is definitely understandable under the circumstances, a situation that very few people go through with their families. We wouldn't really know what is completely normal there. The next chapter, chapter four, is Morning at Green Gables, and it talks about just how beautiful Green Gables is, basically. Marilla and and Anne are having a conversation, and Anne's going to wash the dishes, and Anne... And Marilla are talking about Matthew, about how Matthew is a most ridiculous man. That's what Marilla says. I think he's lovely, said Anne reproachfully. He is so very sympathetic. He didn't mind how much I talked. He seemed to like it. I felt that he was a kindred spirit as soon as I ever saw him. And Marilla says... You're both queer enough if that's what you mean by kindred spirit, which really it is. I mean, if you think about it, Anne and Matthew are pretty well suited to get along. She talks a lot and doesn't really need a response from her conversational partner, at least at this stage of development. Matthew doesn't really like to talk, so he's content to listen and and not respond to people. And they just kind of go on about, you know, naming different things at Green Gables, In the afternoon, Marilla and Anne set off to go speak to Mrs. Spencer to make arrangements to send Anne back to Nova Scotia. And that's all that really happens in that chapter. So chapter five is where we learn about Anne's history. And this is where we start really getting into the meat of who Anne is and why she is the way she is. They're driving along and Anne's talking, of course. And she's talking about her hair, about how it's red. And she says to Marilla, did you ever know of anybody whose hair was red when she was young? It got to be another color when she grew up? No, I don't know as I ever did, said Marilla mercilessly, and I shouldn't think it likely to happen in your case either. Anne sighed. Well, that is another hope gone. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. Again, that depth of despair over her appearance and not looking like other people. I think that goes back to a sense of not belonging, not fitting in, not being wanted. I wonder at this point, does Anne think that if she had a different color hair, different color eyes, if she looked more like the people who she spent the majority of her childhood with, I wonder if she's thinking that they would have accepted her or cared for her or taken care of her more if she looked more like them. Which from an evolutionary perspective makes sense because people are more likely to be attracted to and care more for people who look more like them. Part of the reason with babies that you can sometimes see such a clear resemblance to the parents. There's a whole lot of evolutionary kind of theory behind that, at least from what I've read. Marula changes the subject here. She wants to know... What is Anne's history? She doesn't want imaginings. She doesn't want, you know, fantasy. She wants to know exactly what Anne's history is. So Anne talks about her history. She says that her mother, that her parents were very young. They were both teachers. That Mrs. Thomas used to help her parents, their housekeeping. And that Mrs. Thomas told her that she was the homeliest baby I ever saw. 
but my mother thought I was perfectly beautiful. And she says, I would feel so sad if I thought I was a disappointment to my mother. Her parents both die of the fever when she's three months old. I'm guessing that's scarlet fever. It would have been around the right time. That left me an orphan. Folks were at their wits end, so Mrs. Thomas said, what to do with me? You see, nobody wanted me even then. It seems to be my fate. So there was a big debate about what to do with her. She didn't have any relatives. Finally, Mrs. Thomas says she'll take Anne even though she's poor and has a drunken husband, (laughs) which I'm laughing at because it just seems like such a funny way to state that. But Anne went with them until she was eight. She helped look after the Thomas children. There were four of them younger than Anne. Mr. Thomas was a alcoholic and he ends up dying by falling under a train. Mr. Thomas's mother offered to take Mrs. Thomas and the children, but didn't want Anne. So here Anne is. She's basically homeless again. She's lived with these people for eight years, taking care of their children. They've been her primary caregiver. They've brought her up by hand, um, which I think just means that they actually raised her and didn't leave her to be raised by wolves or something. Now they don't want her. They're discarding her. They don't know what to do with Anne. And then somebody named Mrs. Hammond came upriver and she said she would take Anne to come help her. Mrs. Hammond had eight children. Anne is eight years old. Eight years old. Think of an eight-year-old that you know. She's going to go live with Mr. and Mrs. Hammond and take care of their eight children. She had twins three times. And Anne says this, I like babies in moderation, but twins three times in succession is too much. I told Mrs. Hammond so firmly when the last pair came. I used to get so dreadfully tired carrying them about. So here we have somebody ages eight, nine, ten almost 11, taking care of somebody's children, including three sets of twins that came rapidly one after another. Uh, Of course, there was no birth control back then. Yeah. And people had lots of children in rapid succession. And I lived upriver with Mrs. Hammond over two years. And then Mr. Hammond died and Mrs. Hammond broke up housekeeping, meaning she divided her children up amongst her relatives across the United States and Canada. And nobody wanted Anne. She was sent to the asylum. Again, here we have, she was with one family for about eight years. She's with this other family for two years, taking care of their children. The husband dies, meaning the wife doesn't have a livelihood anymore. Now Anne is sent off again, unwanted because she's not a blood relative. And I do wonder what happened to Mrs. Hammond's children as well, because they're being sent off to I assume, essentially strangers, but our main person here is Anne. And then Anne says this, they didn't want me at the asylum either. They said they were overcrowded as it was. Any fantasies about Anne going to the asylum and being well taken care of and looked after and, you know, loved and coddled and everything like right out the door because we know that an overcrowded asylum is a place where people really don't get the attention they need. Anne is also essentially 11 years old at this time, and she would be expected to take care of the younger children and all of that. So her entire life really, probably from the time she was old enough to change a diaper, she's been taking care of children. And here she is going to an overcrowded asylum where they don't want her taking care of children again. They talk about whether she went to school 
Anne really didn't go to school very much. She went a little bit in the spring and fall the last year she was with the Thomases, and she went a little bit at the orphanage. She talks about all of the things that she can read off by heart. She spent a lot of time memorizing poetry in her spare time, probably because those were the books that were available to her in the various households. And here we have kind of, it's not like a very famous scene, um, and I don't think it's in any of the movies, but it's pretty pivotal. It says, were those women, Mrs. Thomas and Mrs. Hammond, good to you? Asked Marilla, looking at Anne out of the corner of her eye. Oh, faltered Anne, her sensitive little face suddenly flushed scarlet and embarrassment sat on her brow. Oh, they meant to be. I know they meant to be just as good and kind as possible. And when people mean to be good to you, you don't mind very much when they're not quite always. They had a good deal to worry them, you know. It's very trying to have a drunken husband, you see. And it must be very trying to have twins three times in succession, don't you think? But I feel sure they meant to be good to me. So there's Anne kind of rationalizing and excusing this is a defense mechanism she's using because these are the only women that she can remember ever providing her with housing or food or clothing or any kind of support whatsoever. It also, this whole section about Anne's history gives us the information about attachment issues because we then run into those adverse childhood experiences that we've talked about before. So we have at least three that we know of, substance abuse within the home, emotional abuse, and neglect. Those are three of the 10 aces of trauma or adverse childhood experiences of trauma. So we have that in addition to parentification. Parentification is a toxic family dynamic. Um, It's really talked about and it's accepted as the norm in some cultures. Now we're going to be talking about European American and European Canadian culture where it's really not the norm anymore. And I want to just make it really clear that culturally, that different cultures have different expectations of their children when it comes to taking care of other children and stuff like that. But parentification goes beyond normal expectations for older children. It goes beyond just, can you help your sister put her shoes on? Or can you hold your sister's hand while we cross the street? Or can you help your little brother wash his hands before dinner? It goes far beyond that. Parentification is defined by Hooper as a disturbance in the generational boundaries such that evidence indicates a functional and or emotional role reversal in which the child sacrifices his or her own needs for attention, comfort, and guidance in order to accommodate and care for the logistical and emotional needs of a parent and or sibling. We know that Anne experienced this because she's been taking care of the Thomas children, and she's been taking care of the Hammond children. And again, this would go far beyond the normal role of just helping out around the house. She was kept out of school to take care of these children. It was her job to care for them, care for the household. We can hear it when she's talking about whether the women were good to her because 
this is not a normal thing for an 11 year old to say. It's something a parentified 11 year old would say, but it's not something a normal 11 year old would say, where it says it's very trying to have a drunken husband, you see, and it must be very trying to have twins three times in succession. So she's caring for their emotional needs and logistical needs more than her own needs for attention. And Anne, as we've seen already, is desperate for attention. She's desperate to be wanted. She's desperate for attention. She's desperate for somebody to care about her own needs more than caring about what she brings to them. We hear in the conversation earlier with Matthew and Marilla, where Marilla says, what good is she to us? Even though she's having misgivings already about sending Anne back to the orphanage. And Matthew says, I thought we might be some good to her. And to me, that's really a pivotal point in the story where both Matthew and Marilla start to think about themselves, not just of what can we get from having an orphanage in our home, but what can we give to this person who is clearly in need of love and affection and a home and a family and boundaries and discipline and education right? Because again, you can't love away an attachment disorder. You can't love away trauma. You have to be a holding place for that person to resolve their trauma. That's really what therapy is. Therapy isn't a place where you go to get told, do this, do that, etc. The role of the therapist, and this is what Every therapist I've ever known has been taught throughout their education and training and supervision and everything is to hold a space for people to play out their trauma, depression, anxiety, attachment, etc., a safe place for them to do that to resolve some of those issues. And that looks very different for each person. And there are certain tools that are very, very helpful for almost everyone. But the relationship is the defining factor of what's helpful in therapy, not the modality. Again, and again, and again, the research shows that the relationship is what is helpful. And we live in a society that seems kind of hell bent on taking the relationship aspect out of human interaction. And I think it's really shown to be detrimental over the past few years from the pandemic. Anyway, I digress, as Sophia would say. Back to parentification. There are two types of being parentified. There's emotional parentification, which happens when the child becomes the parent's counselor, confidant, or emotional caretaker. Sometimes the involves a form of an emotional incest where the child is being treated as an intimate partner to the parent emotionally. Sometimes here term surrogate, they're a surrogate partner, they're a surrogate parent to their parent. So they might overshare with the child, they might complain about their relationships or even hurt themselves in front of the child, self-harming in front of children, suicidal threats in front of children, that type of stuff is is parentification and emotional abuse. Emotional parentification occurs in families where one or both parents suffer from a mental illness, such as depression or substance use, and it can stem from a parent's own attachment difficulties or transgenerational trauma. 
transgenerational trauma is a big deal. You'll have families where generation after generation after generation of hurt people are parentified, and it's it's very damaging and very difficult to recover from. Instrumental parentification is when the child, so there's two types, emotional parentification that we just talked about. The other type is instrumental parentification, which is when the child engages in functional responsibilities. So physical labor and support in the household, again, above and beyond normal expectations for teaching responsibility, social responsibility, and family responsibility, above and beyond that. We're not talking about just washing the dishes a couple times a week because it's their job or having chores. We're talking about regularly expected, without exception, taking on the role of running the household, housework, cooking, cleaning, taking care of younger siblings, taking themselves to the doctors, and other adult responsibilities. This is not the same as having your kid pick up their room. It's not the same as having them help a sibling get dressed or, you know, having a 16-year-old run a 15-year-old to their dentist or orthodontist appointment. It's, It's really above and beyond what the normal expectations are. The child does not get to be a child. And in Anne's case, we're talking about her being probably as young as four when she starts taking care of babies up until she's 11, running the household. There's a whole bunch of different, you know, situations that parentification can arise from. And these are also adverse childhood experiences, alcoholism or drug addiction of one or both parents, mental illness in a parent or sibling, physically abusive relationships, physically or sexually abusive parent or child relationship. Parentification, it it causes highly sensitive, empathic responses because it's kind of a a two-edged sword. Sensitive, gifted, empathic children are particularly prone to be parentified because they are naturally more empathic, empathetic, empathic towards other people's needs. So they're more likely to step in naturally and take on the role of a caregiver, but also being parentified trains children to be overly sensitive to other people's needs and undersensitive to their own needs. They are kind of robbed of their innocent childhood. You can be an innocent child and wash the dishes. You can be an innocent child and take care of your siblings. You can be an innocent child and do any of these things, right? But when it gets to the point of being robbed of the innocent childhood, when there's involvement where the children know too much about the relationship between the parents, when they're relied upon too heavily, then that's parentification. There are cases of parentification because of war, illness, trauma, death in the family, all of those types of things, which are not malicious, I guess. So it's not the fault of a child that their parent became ill with cancer and they picked up the slack. There was no one else to do it. It's not that this is always some kind of malicious, intentionally abusive situation. And it's not always the case that it's because the parent figure caretaker didn't understand the appropriate boundaries. Sometimes it happens because of other things going on. In this case, this is how orphans were treated when they were brought into your home. The expectation was that they were there to run the household or be a part of running the household, a major part of it, not to be a child and go to school and play with dolls. Highly sensitive children intuitively pick up on emotionally unsafe and unstable conditions. You know, they take things on themselves, but parentified child grows up 
to become an adult who has a gap in their psyche. So it is actually really important for children to have responsibilities and to have a sense of being a child, of not being responsible for all of the adult things that parentified children are are responsible for. They tend to bury anger, resentment, and grief, which can come out, burst out at unexpected times, affecting their ability to be close to someone, sustain a career, and, and feel stable. They may resort to filling the void by ways of substance use, avoidance of relationships, and other short-term self-soothing strategies. So Anne fills that void within herself. She's supposed to be taken care of to some extent throughout her childhood, and she's not. So she's filling that void inside of herself with these fantasy friends, which we learn about in a few chapters, these like kind of imaginary scenarios. She fills that void through reading. She fills that void through talking. She fills that void through a variety of of different methods to self-soothe. And some of hers are actually much more adaptive than others. But, you know, she's famous for having a temper, which we get to in a few chapters. And that temper is not, I don't think, because of ADHD or being on the autism spectrum, that temper is because of parentification and childhood trauma. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with parentification. So how do you move on from parentification trauma? This is something we're going to see illustrated through the chapters of Anne of Green Gables. One of the reasons that as an adult, I love this story so much is because while you can't just love away trauma, parentification, and attachment issues, there are steps to take to start healing from that trauma. One of the main goals of therapy for parentification is to start prioritizing your needs before you jump into rescuing or pleasing others. And living with the Cuthberts, she doesn't have to rescue or please them. She's given a normal place in the household with clearly defined boundaries and expectations. That's one of the things that is therapeutic about being in a healthy, balanced home. The first step to healing is to tell your story of being a parentified child as it is. We just witnessed that from Anne. She just told her story to Marilla of being a parentified child. That's not the whole story. It's not the details of the story. It's the story her 11-year-old self could tell. And Marilla's response was, were they good to you? And she listened to Anne's response without judgment. This is really important that it be listened to without judgment because it's easy to jump into hearing a story like Anne's and say, oh, that's horrible, that's terrible, etc. That can be damaging because that's the only life they've known. And if you start ripping it down too soon and judging it, then it's going to be counterproductive to them healing. You could have guilt as a parentified child. You could have guilt for not doing more, for not being happier, for like for not being more grateful for things in your childhood. But what we don't usually do when it comes to parentification and hearing about parentification, acknowledge that people are going to go through a period of time where they're going to be more emotional, more angry. They're going to be confused about what their role is. 
You're going to be possibly unable to have emotional attachments. Matthew and Anne are extremely close throughout the entire book, um, even after she's an adult and married and everything. Her memories of talking with Matthew are some of her most cherished memories. Part of the reason for that is Matthew was an extreme introvert and he did not want to or need to respond to everything Anne said. He was just there for her without judgment, without, I don't want to say without response because his presence there, a steady presence is a response, but he was just there for her and it provides a space for her to be healing, provides a space for her to tell her story without it being judged. And on the other hand, you have Marilla, who's all about structure and teaching Anne how to have relationships and how to host people in their home and how to cook and going to school and responsibility and what to share and when to share and how much to share and everything. So you have these kind of dual personalities that are kind of seemingly built. Well, it's a book. They are built for this. But they are built to support Anne through healing from this parentification, attachment, trauma, childhood she has. Um, So that's like the main psychological theme of this book and healing from that. And also Matthew and Marilla simultaneously opening their world up because she is with them. Spoiler alert, they keep her. Back to the book. Anne says her whole thing about, I'm sure they meant to be good to me, says, but I feel sure they meant to be good to me. Marilla asked no more questions. Anne gave herself up to a silent rapture over the shore road, and Marilla guided the sorrel abstractedly while she pondered deeply. Pity was suddenly stirring in her heart for the child. What a starved, unloved life she had had a life of drudgery and poverty and neglect. For Marilla was shrewd enough to read between the lines of Anne's history and divine the truth. No wonder she had been so delighted at the prospect of a real home. It was a pity she had to be sent back. What if she, Marilla, should indulge Matthew's unaccountable whim and let her stay? He was set on it, and the child seemed a nice, teachable little thing. So there we have Marilla's empathy and understanding that things were much worse than what Anne's telling her. It's possible Anne doesn't even understand how bad things were because she's a child, despite the fact that she's more mature or precocious in some ways. She's still a child. She still doesn't have a full understanding and adult's understanding of the world because her brain development just isn't there. Developmentally, her brain is in a fine place, but... You know, as you become an adult, you just understand more. Now we go to chapter six. Marilla makes up her mind. They're at Mrs. Spencer's and they're trying to figure out how did this mistake happen? Mrs. Spencer is saying, oh, Nancy is my niece. Nancy told me you wanted a girl, but she's so flighty. Marilla says, can we send the child back to the asylum? They'll take her back, right? And Mrs. Spencer says, I suppose so, but I don't think it will be necessary to send her back. Mrs. Peter Blewett was up here yesterday, and she was saying to me how much she wished she'd sent by me for a little girl to help her. Mrs. Peter has a large family, you know, and she finds it hard to get help. Anne will be the very girl for her. I call it positively providential. So here we have Marilla asking if Anne can be sent back to the asylum, and Mrs. Spencer is saying, oh, we don't need to send her back. Let's give her to another family where she'll 
be a parent. She's 11. She's old enough. Marilla did not look as if she thought Providence had much to do with the matter. Here was an unexpectedly good chance to get this unwelcome orphan off her hands, and she did not even feel grateful for it. She knew Mrs. Peter Blewett only by sight as a small, shrewish woman without an ounce of superfluous flesh on her bones. But she had heard of her, a terrible worker and driver, Mrs. Peter was said to be, and discharged servant girls told fearsome tales of her temper and stinginess, and her family of pert, quarrelsome children. Marilla felt a qualm of conscience at the thought of handing Anne over to her tender mercies. Marilla says they'll think it over, and all of a sudden, wow, Mrs. Blewett's here. Hey, what's up? Let's sit down and talk about you taking this child away, Mrs. Blewett. Now, I just want to say, Mrs. Blewett has a terrible reputation. She has a lot of kids. She doesn't like her servant girls very much. And we're supposed to dislike her. We don't want Anne to go there. I totally get it. I just also want to say this was a period of time where women had very little to no choice about how many children they had, how much sex they had, when they had children. And it's entirely possible that Mrs. Peter Blewett had severe postpartum psychosis, was completely overwhelmed, and did not know how to handle anything because she was getting no sleep, had a bunch of kids, and her husband was just deciding when the next babies come. So just a devil's advocate view of Mrs. Blewett here <laughs> before we go back to the book. So they're going to sit down and, and talk about Anne going to live with Mrs. Blewett. And this is Anne's trauma reaction. Anne, sitting mutely on the ottoman with her hands clasped tightly in her lap, stared at Mrs. Blewett as one fascinated. Was she to be given in to the keeping of this sharp-faced, sharp-eyed woman? She felt a lump coming into her throat, and her eyes smarted painfully. She was beginning to be afraid she couldn't keep the tears back when Mrs. Spencer returned. So there's that trauma reaction. Anne's thinking, I'm going to go back into the same situation, and I'm going to have to take care of children again, and she has a large family, and she has trouble getting help, and oh my gosh, here we go again. And then that trauma starts coming up with the tears, and um, sounds like feeling a little frozen, and a lump in her throat. They go forward, they talk about her like she's property, and then Mrs. Blewett talks to Anne, and she's pretty demanding. Anne tells her her name, I'm 11 years old, and Mrs. Blewett says, you're wiry and you're tiny and fine. Come live with me. I can take you home right now, she says. Rilla looked at Anne and softened at sight of the child's pale face with its look of mute misery. The misery of a helpless little creature who finds itself once more caught in the trap from which it had escaped. Marilla felt an uncomfortable conviction that if she denied the appeal of that look, it would haunt her to her dying day. Moreover, she did not fancy Mrs. Blewett to hand a sensitive, high-strung child over to such a woman. No, she could not take the responsibility of doing that. Marilla says, well, we didn't really say we wanted to send her back, actually. We haven't decided yet. I think I should go talk it over with Matthew. I mean, can you imagine Matthew? I don't know if I could imagine the man being actually angry, but everybody has the emotion of anger and he probably would be if Marilla did that. You know, so they're going to take her back and then I'll send her over tomorrow night if she's going to stay with you. That's not going to happen. And kind of comes back alive. They go home. Marilla waits for Anne to go inside and then she tells Matthew what happened and tells Matthew Anne's history. This is Matthew's response to the part about Mrs. Blewett 
I wouldn't give a dog I liked to that bluet woman, said Matthew with unusual vim. I don't fancy her style myself, admitted Marilla, but it's that or keeping her ourselves, Matthew. And since you seem to want her, I suppose I'm willing or have to be. I've been thinking over the idea until I've got kind of used to it, and it seems a sort of duty. I've never brought up a child, especially a girl, and I dare say I'll make a terrible mess of it. But I'll do my best. As far as I'm concerned, Matthew, she may stay. Matthew's ecstatic. Marilla says, Matthew, not to go interfering with her methods, which he never does directly. He always goes behind her back. Marilla decided she's not going to tell Anne until the morning. She's thinking kind of to herself. And Marilla says to herself, did you ever suppose you'd see the day when you'd be adopting an orphan girl? It's surprising enough, but not so surprising as that Matthew should be at the bottom of it. Him that always seemed to have such a mortal dread of little girls. And that's, that's the end of the chapter. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here with Marilla and Matthew's decision to keep her. One of the things that I wanted to say about trauma, parentification, abuse, adverse childhood experiences, stuff like that, is that it really only takes one person or a couple of people to see someone's need for healing and start providing that space for it, for things to change. It could be a teacher, aunt, or an uncle, or Whoever, you know, somebody who's not going to abuse them, who's going to let them be a child, who's going to give them structure and love and acceptance and let them have their process so that they can grow into someone with relatively normal relationship patterns and and emotional patterns and learn to regulate their emotions and everything. We'll be moving forward from here with examples of how the situation at Green Gables plays out to allow Anne to start healing from this, how her developmental stage at the time is also helpful for her to be healing from the parentification and abuse that she's experienced. Thank you for listening. Um, I really hope that this has been helpful. If you like it, then, you know, like, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. So you can find us there. And if you want to support the podcast, I have a Patreon. Otherwise, you can support it on Anchor. I hope everybody has a really gentle, lovely day. And this session is over.